0: Welcome to the Key Ride Home for Friday the 13th of August 2021, I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the groundbreaking study that has basically given us a daily diary of the entire life of a 17,000-year-old woolly mammoth, why coffee prices are spiking, and a ransom scam targeting authors that says a lot about the state of the world today. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. A new study published yesterday in the journal Science is getting a lot of attention because it is the most comprehensive look at the life of an individual woolly mammoth ever recorded. It's a groundbreaking study not just because of how complete, detailed, and unprecedented a picture it gives us of this one mammoth's life. Vanderbilt University paleontologist Larissa DeSantis, who wasn't involved in the study, says the only way they could have gone further would be by, quote, going back in time and putting a GPS collar on a woolly mammoth, end quote. But it's also remarkable because of what all of that information may be able to tell us about woolly mammoths in general, if they had interactions with humans, and how they went extinct, something that could shine particular insight on how other mammals of their size that are around today may react to our presently changing climate. Quoting the New York Times, more than 17,000 years ago, a woolly mammoth known today as Kick wandered far and wide across Alaska during his 28 years of life. When Kick was young, he spent most of his time in the Alaskan interior, a less mountainous area. Then, when he turned 15, his patterns of movement shifted, spending much more time to the north, where the Arctic Wildlife Refuge and National Petroleum Reserve are found today. During some years, Kick migrated with the seasons, other years, he largely stayed put in the same area all year round. In the last couple of years of his life, his movement slowed and he was confined to a smaller area above the Arctic Circle. At 28, when he died, Kik was still middle-aged for a mammoth, end quote. Most of that tracks with what scientists have long known about woolly mammoths. As juveniles, they tend to travel in herds with mothers and other young. Upon reaching sexual maturity, the males usually went off on their own or in herds of other males. The extent to which he moved around, though, was something scientists had thought might be the case, basing their theory on the movement patterns of modern African elephants. But this is the first evidence for that. And it is quite a lot of travel. Nature notes that Kick traveled so much over his life, even if it was mostly in the same region, that he could have circumnavigated the globe twice. But how did the researchers piece together all this data? It started with a tusk, a five and a half foot long curve that Zach St. George, a National Geographic reporter who got to visit it in the lab, noted was thicker than his arm. A mammoth tusk is almost like a tree ring, continuously growing throughout a mammoth's life, and therefore providing clues about that life lived. If you can access and analyze the chemical composition, that is, which has been tough to do comprehensively up to this point. One of the cutting-edge methods employed for this study was isotopic mapping, isotopes being variations on elements with different numbers of neutrons. Matthew Wooler, a paleoecologist at the University of Alaska Fairbanks and co-lead on the study, told National Geographic that isotopic mapping is a real boom industry right now. It's been used recently in everything from recreating ancient human diets to cracking cold cases. But as for the mammoth study, quoting Nature, The researchers split the tusk down the middle to reveal the layers of growth, which look like a curving stack of ice cream cones. The base of this stack is the day that it died, and the tip is the day that it was born, says Wooler. Everything in between is the lifespan of the mammoth. The researchers used lasers to sample the tusk's chemical composition at approximately 340,000 points along the full length of the cone tips. Every place on Earth has a distinct chemical signature based on differences in its geology. The ratios of various isotopes of elements such as strontium and oxygen in the bedrock and water create a unique profile specific to that location that remains consistent over millennia and is incorporated into soil and plants. As mammoths grazed on the Arctic plains, these isotopic signatures were integrated into their ever-growing tusks, creating a permanent record of the animal's whereabouts with almost daily resolution. End quote. And from National Geographic, quote, Strontium isotopes make up the heart of the study. Animals acquire strontium through the plants they eat, which absorb it from the underlying rock. Different geological regions have different strontium isotopic signatures. While the climate of Alaska has changed dramatically since the Pleistocene epoch, its geological arrangement hasn't. As the mammoth ate its way across the landscape, the strontium being sequestered in its tusks became a record of its travels. The tusk is like a chemical GPS, Wooler says, one with 340 30,000 entries." To map out the strontium data, the team turned to voles, small, forest-dwelling herbivorous rodents who don't travel nearly as far as our woolly mammoth subject. Existing largely in the same place for most of their lives, though, means that the strontium in their teeth is a reliable geographic marker. So with the voles, the team was able to map out strontium across Alaska and then cross-check that with the data from the tusk. Other details of Kik's biography, like his age and sex, were found via radiocarbon dating and extracted fragments of ancient DNA from the rest of his fossil. And it wasn't just the vole's teeth that came in handy. Kik's, too, were able to inform data points like seasonal changes and sleep patterns that filled in some of the more granular details of Kik's life. To ascertain when and how he died, the team noted a change in the nitrogen isotopes in his tusk around the age of 27. Quoting again from National Geographic, different foods produced Different nitrogen isotope signatures, and that summer Kick's nitrogen isotopes began to resemble those of a carnivore. For a plant-eating mammoth, it could only mean one thing: Kick's body was eating itself. He was starving. End quote. He died at age 28, a relatively young age for a mammoth who we believe often lived into their 60s or 70s. And though he officially died of starvation, researchers think that he starved because he'd experienced some kind of injury. But zooming out to woolly mammoths as a whole, there are two prevailing schools of thought when it comes to their extinction. One is that humans hunted them and other large mammals to the point of extinction, and the other is that their extinction was caused primarily by the changing climate. When the mammoths of modern-day mainland Alaska went extinct about 13,000 years ago, the area was warming and becoming wetter as grassy plains turned to forests. And since Kick died 3,000 years before the first humans arrived in what is now North America, his tusk died doesn't explicitly shed any further light on this debate. However, Wooler points to how the areas that the mammoths regularly migrated to and from filled in with trees in those thousands of years after Kick died, and how that necessarily shrunk and changed their movements and habitat, which then resulted in the mammoths who were around for about the 1,000 years with humans were more susceptible to human hunting. And Wooler points out that similar changes are already happening with caribou now, as the changing climate in Alaska forces them to change their migratory patterns. And as paleontologist Larissa DeSantis told National Geographic, quote, we're living in a world in which humans and climate change are both having impacts on animals. If that was the deadly combination that led to the large animal extinctions that happened in the Pleistocene, we really need to be cautious, end quote. Well, here's the latest price watch. Coffee is about to get more expensive. The reason lies in a shortage of beans. And that shortage, like so much else I've covered here, has two main causes, supply chain challenges and environmental factors. Quoting the New York Times, extreme weather has damaged crops in Brazil, the world's largest coffee exporter. On top of pandemic-related shipping bottlenecks and political protests that stalled exports from Colombia, that has pushed the cost of beans up near in 2021. Behind that increase is a run-up in the price of beans that will be delivered to roasters months from now. Traders call these coffee futures, and they serve as a baseline for buyers around the world. A pound of Arabica beans in the futures market, usually $1.20 to $1.40, rose above $2 at the end of July, the highest since 2014. On Wednesday, the price of coffee futures was $1.84 a pound. Prices climbed above $1.40 in late April as weeks of political protests rocked Colombia, the world's third largest coffee exporter. The country exported 340,000 60-kilogram bags of coffee in May, only one-third of its usual monthly shipment, according to data from the Nonprofit profit National Federation of Coffee Growers of Colombia. Colombia's exports have since rebounded, but those from other large producers like Vietnam have been slowed by shipping bottlenecks as the global economy struggles to reopen after a year of lockdowns. A shortage of shipping containers has restricted exports, analysts say, and led to a sharp rise in the cost of shipping, too. End quote. And coffee roasters, distributors, and cafe owners are feeling the heat. Fairwave Holdings, a cafe and packaged coffee company based in Kansas City, say they've raised their prices and slowed hiring. Dan Trott, the company's chief executive, told the Wall Street Journal, quote, In my 35-plus years of experience, this is one of the most rapidly rising cost environments that I've seen. End quote. Donald Scheunholt, on the other hand, the 76-year-old president of Brooklyn-based Gilly's Coffee, which has been around since before the Civil War, told the New York Times he was taking it in stride because he's seen price gains like this before. That said, he too has raised the prices on his clients, distributors who resell Gilly's beans to cafes and grocery stores. Owners of smaller, independent cafes are the most worried, having just barely weathered the storm of the pandemic. Starbucks, meanwhile, said on a recent earnings call that they've got a 14 month stash of coffee, so they're good for now. But they, Nestle and JM Smucker Co., which owns Folgers and Duncan's packaged ground coffee, are all considering raising prices, or in some cases have. And that future is really what's in question. With the extreme weather in Brazil, a cold snap, drought, and now wildfire season, next year's harvest is really in question. And the Times notes that producers in Brazil won't be able to make concrete decisions until the end of this year's harvest next month. Quoting again from the Times, A severe cold frost normally burns leaves and branches of the coffee tree, which reduces the quality and quantity of coffee bean production, said Kevin Reiney, assistant professor in Rucker University's Department of Geography, where he specializes on the coffee industry. If the damage is bad enough, growers may have to stump their trees or cut them down to the base, which means it'll be three years before the next harvest, Mr. Reiney said. If they only need to prune branches, the harvest could be delayed a year. Often the decision comes down to whether the grower can afford to pay someone to prune or stump the trees. Doing nothing means risking continually poor harvests that could ripple through the global market, End quote and some ripples are already being felt. The cost of beans from Mexico have risen between 10 and 15% in recent months because of problems in Brazil, and there have also been delays from El Salvador and other locations as a result of the shipping bottlenecks. As every company tries to shore up their strategy and prepare for a potentially long haul, instant coffee company Waka Coffee is taking an unexpected approach. In addition to trying to buy in bulk to negotiate lower prices, Chief Executive David Kovaleski has lowered Waka's prices, hoping to become the cheap alternative as other companies raise theirs. He told the Wall Street Journal, quote, consumers will be looking for more affordable options, end quotes. And like I said in a recent episode, Starbucks is already kind of getting ahead of this by focusing their strategy on non-coffee-based cold drinks, food, and customizations, all the stuff that costs much more for consumers than straight-up coffee or standard espresso drinks anyways. I guess smaller coffee shops could try some of those tricks too, to the extent that they can. Fortunately, according to most of the companies that the Wall Street Journal spoke to, a lot of customers have been understanding of any cafes that have increased their prices since they're seeing the price hikes across the board. I don't know how long that goodwill of supporting local cafes and restaurants through the pandemic will last, but hopefully it keeps up long enough for some of these small businesses to make it through. So here's some news that's a little fascinating, but especially as an author, mostly terrifying. As if negative Goodreads reviews just on their own weren't bad enough, apparently some authors are now receiving ransom emails asking them for sums of money or else the anonymous person will tank their Goodreads rating. Now, that might sound a little ridiculous that an author would care, but unfortunately, Goodreads plays an outsized role in the success of a book— Anyone can leave a 5-star scale rating and a review, which can also receive likes and comments itself. And every book on the site is displayed, as products on Goodreads parent company's site Amazon are, with the star rating and the number of ratings and reviews. And many people browsing the site will automatically write off a book that has too few stars or even just too few reviews, the internet version of judging a book by its cover. But here's the really interesting part about these ransom notes. It's the way that they're bombarding authors' reviews. Quoting Literary Hub, This is not an isolated incident. Many writers have taken to Goodreads forums to speak up about their similar experiences of Goodreads' shakedowns. After refusing to pay a ransom fee, writers get hit with the same phrasing of one-star reviews. Full misogyny. Save your money and thank me later. Serious anti-Christian religious overtones. Avoid. Avoid. End quote. The bad actors are playing right into the signals many people look for to turn away from a book without further consideration. And this sort of weaponizing of cancel culture was inevitable and something we've seen before. Mike Cernovich, the alt-right influencer best known for helping spread Pizzagate, was on an admitted mission a few years ago to dig up old posts by liberal Hollywood folks in an attempt to get them cancelled, basically trying to use what he saw as the liberals' playbook against themselves. These ransom notes, which bombard book review pages with unfounded claims of misogyny and racism, is cut from the same cloth. Albeit a bit more chaotic and financially motivated, given that some reviews claim books are anti-Christian means they're probably agnostic in who they're trying to offend, and there are recent reports from authors that they're now receiving unsolicited offers to clean up their bad ratings if they just pay them a fee. And most likely, those are all coming from the same source. Authors have so far been unsatisfied with Goodreads' belated and lackluster reply that they're investigating the situation. Larger changes and better moderation might be an idea, but for now, I'll just say that if you've ever read a book you really enjoyed, or if you've got author friends, take a few minutes to go leave some positive ratings and reviews on their books. In a world controlled by algorithms, padding positive reviews is sometimes the only thing you can do to stay afloat. So, a council area in Scotland called Inverclyde is about to see 15 sets of twins starting primary school at the same time. It's a pretty remarkable coincidence on its own, but it turns out it's not the first time Inverclyde has seen such a high number of twins entering the school system. It's not even their record. In 2015, there were 19 pairs of twins starting school, and as of the following year, they had 88 pairs pairs of twins at all ages across the primary schools in the area. They've had such an uptick in twins in recent years that some people have taken to calling the area Twinverclyde. Why so many twins? I did some digging and unfortunately could not find anything more than quotes from school officials saying it must be something in the water. There are a number of communities around the world with above average rates of twins, and despite some of them being studied for quite some time, there's not a lot of conclusive evidence for why exactly it happens. However, the overall rate of twins around the world is at the highest it has ever been on record. This is due to a combination of an increase in fertility treatments, which sometimes results in multiples, as well as people in high income countries, especially getting pregnant later in life, which also makes you more likely to have fraternal twins. So if you feel like you've seen more twins in schools in recent years, it's not just you. There really are more twins these days. But most school systems don't have quite as many as Inverclyde. But with that, I am checking out for the week. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kaki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday.